Uh, well, it's great to be here. Um, again, it's always um, really a privilege to come and share the Word of God anywhere I go, but it's uh, an especially privilege to come here because you've been so well trained to hear the Word of God and you have a desire for it. I remember the last time I was here, I actually um, spoke on a message, uh, for, on a text that was my first time ever I'm preaching on it, and I wasn't sure how that was going to go, and I realized that it went a bit long, actually. Some of you said, yes, I remember that, <laughs> and it did, but I just I lost track. I was so into it as well, um, but it won't be that same way again, um, And but I will be passionate about what I'm going to preach um, to you from the Word of God. And it is a blessing to be here in place of your pastor, Steve. Uh, uh, high regard for Steve. Love him and what he has allowed the Lord to do through him here. And it really is uh, my privilege to be here to bring the Word of God to you. And uh, hopefully he is going to come back safely and enjoy probably maybe today some Texas barbecue, I'm sure is what he'll enjoy. I got back late last night. I was actually visiting three of our Grace Advance churches on the East Coast. Got in about midnight because things were delayed and and um, it was quite, um, it was not, chilly is not a good word. Um, it was, chilly would be, you know, just put on a windbreaker. Uh, this is not chilly weather. Um, well, it was chilly weather because it'd be some nice hot chili to kind of, <laughs> but um, I mean, I got up this other morning to go to a men's breakfast and it was seven degrees and I had forgotten I had a water bottle. I left the water bottle in the car and it was frozen solid, not just, it was frozen solid. So um, I'm glad to be here in 65 <laughs> degree weather. <laughs> this is a treat. Yeah, actually, this is a heat wave, actually. Um, but God's word is great, isn't it? I mean, it really is. I mean, you, you hear it. Um, God uses it in our lives, and I'm praying that God will use his word um, in these moments ahead as we look to it. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for um, the privilege we have to come now, and I am to speak to these dear people I pray, Lord, that they would um, hear, and even if it means, um, despite me, that they would hear, but I pray that you would speak through me, that they would be encouraged as your word goes forth, that it would have its way in each heart. In Christ's name, amen. Look with me to um, Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57. And let me read the text um, for us this morning in Isaiah 57. And we can just look at verse 14. Our focus is going to be verse 15. That's our text for this morning, just Isaiah 57, 15. But 14, it says, And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And this morning, I, I want us to go on a journey. And I, and I suppose every time, I mean, one preaches the Word of God and you hear the Word of God, you're on a journey. You know, as a preacher of the Word, you've journeyed through studying the text itself. You study through understanding it, interpreting it, and then preparing a message. And there's also a journey because you you have your own personal journey where you are asking questions of what does this mean for me Lord, allow it to impact my heart. So we're on this journey of sanctification. And in this journey, I want us to see um, a text that I think confronts pride. Absolutely. It, it challenges self-sufficiency. 
it, it shatters any thought that one may have of, of self-deification. But it also encourages dependence on the grace of God. And we would might entitle the message, Encourage by an Eminently Gracious God. Encourage by an Eminently Gracious God. And you'll understand as we go through the text, why do I say eminently gracious? We're going to see God's eminence in this text, but we're also going to see God's transcendence. So when we think about God's transcendence, we're thinking about God being lofty, the otherness of God, the the greatness of God, the majesty of God. And we think about eminence, we, we think as we are really coming out of this Christmas season, we think Emmanuel. It is God with us. So we think eminence. We think that God is there with us. He is close to us. He is even intimate with us. And these two we see here are merged beautifully in this one text in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen that God is transcendent. There's the otherness of God, but God is also an eminent God. But not only is he an eminent God, he desires to be so. He desires to be eminent. He desires to be with his people, to be close to them. And I'm hoping that um, even this morning that the Spirit of God will, as always, use his word to conform your hearts more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And it might confront your pride, but it would encourage you to depend on this Lord that is so gracious and overwhelmingly beautiful. And I say confront pride because um, one it may hear that initially and say, well, I don't think that uh, that's an issue with me. Well, friend, the moment you make that statement, guess what? It's become an issue with you, hasn't it? I mean, there's some element in pride in all of us. Would you not agree with that? Is anyone here today free from pride? Now, you wouldn't dare you raise your hand now, right? But of course not. I mean, and here's the reality As we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I sincerely believe that the more we realize how much pride we have. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, other areas of sin that we realize that we have, that perhaps we didn't know that a year ago or two years ago or five years ago or ten years ago. There is that sense in which I most likely have communicated this at some point in time to you. Perhaps it was at a conference. I'm not sure. But I think it needs to be said even now that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God, we see a picture of God and who he is. And that picture reminds us of what we are not. What we're striving for. Now, initially, one can become discouraged because of that, and they look at their lives and say, I'm not progressing in the way in which I would hope. I'm I'm not seeing more of Christ in the way that I would like. But then there is a sense when we look at a text like this, we see that, but God is gracious. He's with the humble. He's with the contrite. He is there to encourage you, to even sanctify you. But there's a context of this verse that we need to understand. If we look at um, Isaiah itself, and it is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. And if we were to look at Isaiah chapters 1 to 39, we see that there is none that are righteous. There is no righteousness throughout the nations. Therefore, God is pronouncing judgment in Isaiah 1 to 39. It's woe, it's woe, it's woe. Nations, I will judge. Nations, I will judge. You see it throughout. And then in Isaiah 40 to 55, we understand this, that God is saying he will graciously provide. He will provide for his people because he is a gracious God. And ultimately, he will even provide for the nations despite that they have no righteousness and they are deserving of judgment. He will provide for them because of one, Jesus Christ, that suffering servant who will provide a way. And even that whole segment in Isaiah ends beautifully in 55 because there is this calling to say, why don't you come, all you that are thirsty, Come, and he says, buy without money and without cost. So judgment, 1 to 39, 40 to 55, God's provision because he's a gracious God. And then in 56 to 66, here's the proof of God's resolution to provide. Let me assure you, I will make all things new. I will keep my word. 
And isn't it encouraging today that we can um, assure our souls even that God will keep his word. God will be a faithful God. Everyone in this room today, whether you recognize it or not, God has been faithful to you. And most of you here, I'm sure that if I were to ask you right now, has God been faithful, your response would be what? What would it be? Amen. Indeed, he has been faithful. So we see in this beautiful passage, this context that is set. But let's go a little bit further into the context so we can understand verse 15 better. Here is this voice of the servant that goes forth in Isaiah 52 and 53. The voice of the servant goes forth, and there is a declaration that the servant will succeed. The servant, the suffering servant, being Jesus Christ. And then as I said earlier in Isaiah 55, look at Isaiah 55 with me. There is this great invitation to dine with the Lord. Salvation can come without money and without cost. Why? Because the servant has been successful. God's graciousness can now be extended to men. Notice 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me carefully Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance, he says. It is free. It is available. It is abundant, he says. And what is interesting about it, in Isaiah 55, he says, ho. And what, what it's essentially saying, let me get your attention. Now, if you were to go earlier in Isaiah 55, you would see this same word that was being used throughout. Remember when I talked about judgment, but the same word would be translated woe. Because he would say to the nations, woe. Then he would say, this is why I'm going to judge you. Woe, this is why I'm going to judge you. Woe, this is why I'm going to judge you. But here in Isaiah 55, it's translated, oh, pay attention. It's no longer woe. It's no longer judgment. Why is it no longer judgment? Because Jesus Christ was crushed and marred and bruised. Because he succeeded. He made a way so now that it can be without money and without cost. And it only makes sense it would be without money and without cost because what you have to offer is worthless anyway. Which is a statement that we see in Isaiah 56 and 57. Uh, in, in Isaiah 56 and 57, it's a reminder that, that man is totally inept at saving himself. He's reminded that his righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. And that's why it must be without money and without cost because uh, what you offer me is nothing. It won't satisfy. Then we look at Isaiah 56 and 1 through 8. We see man's purpose is to be in covenant with God. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it. And he goes on to say in verse four, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and chose and chose what pleases me. And I hold fast my covenant. They hold fast covenant with me. Man is created to be in covenant with God, but we violate it. And that's why grace is necessary. And then, beginning in verse 9 and and 56, taking us all the way into verse 13 of 57, here's this thought that God reminds Israel that because they have served idols, all of which are impotent, they will be judged. And what's the implication of that thought? God is saying, I'm the only one that can save. Why are you choosing these foolish gods that are not gods at all? Why are you worshiping these crafted images that have no power whatsoever to deliver you? I'm the only one that can save. Now, notice verse 13, if if you will, in um, verse chapter 57. He says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them away, and the breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land, 
and will possess my holy mountain. That's a, a, simply a statement when he says, and will possess my holy mountain, you will reside with me. You will be in my presence. You will be saved. And notice here in verse 13, notice this divine intervention that takes place. He says, well, why don't you go to your God? See if your gods will help you. Well, they won't. Even the wind is going to take them away. And notice this divine intervention in verse 13. But he who takes refuge in me. But he who takes refuge. The thought is similar to um, Ephesians um, 2, 1 and 3. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. You walked according to the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air. But in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us made us alive. God must intervene. Uh, Left to our own course, we will go astray. Left to our own course, we will devise ways that we think will please God, but they don't. People work so hard to please God, but they cannot because God is a God that is high and lifted up and requires perfection. I was um, last month in Singapore. Boy, um... And um, I was talking to a gentleman, got to the airport, needed to get to the hotel, and I was there to see some missionaries and uh, called an Uber, Uber in Singapore. You love it, right? Uh, got an Uber and talking to the, the, the gentleman, it's about a 20, 25-minute drive, and I'm asking him things about the city. I said, it's so beautiful. I heard about it, da 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 and uh, he tells me, you've got to have Singaporean chili crab. It's really, really good. You've got to do this. Don't buy your stuff there. Buy it there. And, I'm, and I said, well, okay, great. I appreciate that. Um, and then, you know what? I, I got out. And on the way back, I got in, in the cab with another guy. And, I'm, and with him, the conversation was different. Why was the conversation different? Because I thought to myself, wait a minute. You're here to see a missionary, and there was an opportunity right in front of you that's now gone. Gone. And so I got in this cab going back to the airport, and the first thing I asked, I said, do you like, what about religion? Any, do you practice any religion? And what's the atmosphere in Singapore as, as to religion is concerned? Oh, we're very open. You can practice whatever you want to practice, and very open to that. And he said he was a Hindu, and we talked about Hinduism. And I said, uh, well, how are you doing in that? Where are you? What stage are you right now? And he says, well, one doesn't know that. And I said, yeah, that's right. Um, but he said, yeah, you know, there's some issues I have. And, and he, he made a sort of a, a mini confession to me. So I said, well, already you're going to have to come back again because you haven't achieved now. He says, you're right. And how long do you think it would take? Well, one doesn't know. And then, but if you come back again and you fail again, you're going to have to go through the cycle again and again and again, if it were true. But I said, the Bible says it's appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. And that's why Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, is the only way that can end this cycle that you think you're in. He lived that life. Was he sincere? Absolutely. I think it was very sincere about the path that he was on. He was from India, but really Singaporean. But here's the truth, and I think we all know this. Sincerity has never been the definition of truth, has it? And how sad to go through life that way, thinking that somehow you're going to attain some favor with the divine, and you're not. God is saying to Israel, it's only through me. Only for those who take refuge in me. Notice something else, if you will, that will help us understand this a bit more. Go with me to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. In verses 3 to 5, because earlier it talked about coming to this mountain. In Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, it opens up, remember I said this section, everything else prior to that has been judgment that is going to be on the nations. And now he says in verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And, and this text obviously speaking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And notice the language here. It is a highway of God. But go back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. So a highway for God. Call out. It is available. But one, if you're traveling on this broad road, it is one of destruction. These are um, obviously the words of Christ as well. Isaiah 35 Verse 8, it refers to it here as a highway of holiness. In verse 8, it says a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. Only it will be limited in access Who are those that will gain access to it? Only those who take refuge in the Lord and the gracious hand of God. So now what is, go back to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, so he says here, now in verse 15, what is the reason that God's promise is true? How is he going to move every obstacle out of the way as he says in verse 15? How is he possibly going to allow people to take refuge in him? How is, he, how is he going to put people on this holy mountain? Well, verse 15, he says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell. So he, we notice where he is, but where he desires to be as well with people who are contrite and lowly. Let me give you our first major point. Having said that, be encouraged by God's statement of his greatness. We can be encouraged by God's statement of his greatness. Notice how it starts off, for thus says, so So now Yahweh speaks. So because not only is Israel's voice muted, their voice is muted because they're spiritually impotent. They have fallen into idolatry, so now God is the one that must speak this plan of salvation to the nations. Israel was the one that should have been speaking and telling the nations, here is the highway, here is the road of holiness, here is the road of God. But they weren't traveling it themselves. So how is it they can direct someone to the road and they don't even know the road? They are following after these idols that God says if even the wind blows, they will be taken away. Society suffers from the same thing. Spiritually impotent, although many people would uh, say they identify with some idea of God or with religion, it is still ultimately empty and impotent. Notice what he says about his greatness, his lofty character in dwelling. God's lofty character in dwelling. So God speaks high and exalted one. Only three times do you see this in the Old Testament. This idea that God says that he is high and exalted. Only three times. You see it in Isaiah 6.1, that great picture that Isaiah um, has of God and his holiness. You see it also in Isaiah 33.10, that God is high and exalted. What does it mean that God is high and exalted? Different, distinct. He is in comparison to mankind, remember, in comparison to mankind, in Isaiah 40, it says that the nations are just a drop in the bucket. The people are like grasshoppers. But God is high and exalted, distinct, different. Notice something else. Go back with me to Isaiah 52. This idea of being high and exalted. Notice what he says in Isaiah 52, and it is about the servant. The servant, it says, behold, my servant will prosper or he will succeed. And as we said earlier, that's why now grace is available because the servant has succeeded. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted because of who he is and what he has done. You might even note Isaiah 33, 5 and 6. It says the Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. Let me make a statement. I believe that if we understood passages like this better, our churches would be healthier. Every personal or even, we might say, church philosophy of ministry should begin here with a high view of God. 
And once we have a high view of God, that is setting the bar properly. It puts everything in perspective. And whatever we face, even on a practical level in life, if we have a high view of God, then we can look at life through that grid and understand it. Oh, one of my a dear friend of mine, they're facing um, a real challenge in life right now with the health of his wife and um, and news of whether or not, you know, they're our age and whether or not she has months to live or maybe even a couple years to live at best. What, what, and I've talked with him and others have talked with him and I know him, I've known him for over 20 years. What gets a person through that? And how do you still trust God in the midst of that? I mean, you've raised a family with your dear wife, and now you get this news that maybe we aren't sure what the next months may have for you. It has to begin with having a right view of God. If you have a high and lofty view of God, and if you understand that this God who is high and lofty but has also been gracious towards you and extending kindness to you, you can accept sometimes the bad news along with the good. You can have the spirit of a Job and say the Lord gives and the Lord does what? Blessed be the name of the, of the Lord. It's necessary. So we can be encouraged by God's statement of his greatness. We serve this great God. But here, secondly, this. We should be encouraged by God's statement of his humility. Be encouraged by God's statement of his humility. Because if we notice verse 15, God is high and exalted who lives forever. So a statement of God's eternality, whose name is holy. And we stop here for a moment and consider the holiness of God. Um, the psalm is said in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. It is a statement of who he is, and the name being extremely important. And so God's name being holy, saying that I'm distinct, I'm separate. And we think about God's holiness, it is a statement that God is absolutely unique. He is separated and unique. It is, is a statement that he is separated. He is morally and absolutely pure. But God's holiness, and I would understand to be his chief attribute, it speaks to his completeness, if you will. And so when we think about God's holiness, we, we think about it in view of God's grace. Grace is necessary because God is Holy, it requires intervention because man is unholy and man is unrighteous. Therefore, because God is holy, it requires God to be gracious towards us. Because God is holy, it then requires God to be merciful towards us. Because mercy is required, it is necessary that God be sympathetic towards his creatures. Because if not, the scripture tells us who could stand. It's also necessary that there be wrath because of God's holiness. I um, was in D.C., Baltimore recently, and I went to um, one day with one of the uh, Grace Advance men and his family. He said, oh, we're going to go see the Museum of the Bible. Just, you know, recently opened up there in the D.C. area. And if you can and I'm getting nothing for this but my sincere excitement about it. Uh, If you can get your family to go there and make a trip of it, absolutely do it. And we were there for five hours, and we saw 5% of maybe what you could see. It's a three-day mission, if you will, just about the Bible and how we got the Bible, its impact on the world, translations, um, its impact on American culture. Uh, Fascinating, very interactive um, as well, fascinating, fascinating thing that we were involved in as we went there. And I was thinking about, as we were there, um, one person that um, was working there, we asked him, what's the best way to go about it? And she said, what you're going to find here is that it's all about the Bible. Now, I don't think they had really an official, official position. They said, but what you won't find, nothing about hell and damnation, that sort of bad stuff. I thought, wow, okay. (laughs) 
And George Lawson and I, who is the Grace Advance man there, had just been talking about that. The how it's a necessity to preach everlasting separation. It's one of the kindest things you can do to a person. For a person. To let them know, friend, your righteousness is like filthy rags. But because God is a holy God, there must be wrath because you have violated God's holiness, his utter separation, his uniqueness. You have violated that, and therefore God is going to pour his wrath on you forever. But there is a way out. And that's the beauty of what we even read in Isaiah 55. He says, come, all you are what? You're thirsty without money and without cost. Now, it would be cruel, it would be evil if we simply said to people, well, friend, God is holy and distinct and he's high and lifted up and he's made no means for you whatsoever. That would be cruel. But that's not the gospel, is it? Amen? It's not the gospel. He has made a way for you. All of these are intertwined and there's even more to be said. But go back to Isaiah 57. So we can be encouraged by the statement of his humility. His greatness is obvious. We see it, and we see it throughout. But the statement of his humility, notice what it says. Again, he's lofty. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also, so important, with the contrite and lowly of spirit. This is a demonstration of his humility, to dwell. So we can make a connection perhaps right away. You think about John chapter 1, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. And what is interesting about John's gospel and its connection and those I am's that go through John's gospel, seven I am's, seven miracles that tell the story in the life of Jesus Christ, uh, depicting him as that one who is distinct, the eternal logos. We see that, and right away our mind goes to perhaps um, Exodus 33 and 34, and God makes the pronouncement that I am the great I am. And say that I am has sent you. But I think before we go to Exodus, we should stop, if you will, in Isaiah. Because you'll see if you study John and Isaiah, these connections between the two. Because in Isaiah, you see throughout, I am. And let me just give you a little taste of it, if you will. Go with me to Isaiah 40. Uh, Isaiah 40. So we see throughout God making statements that he is this everlasting God. Verse 18, it says, to whom will you liken me and what likeness will you compare with him? He makes this statement. Verse 25, he says, to whom will you liken me that I will be his equal, says the Holy One. There is no other. Notice what he says in chapter 41 and verse 4. He says, I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he. Verse 10, he says, I do not fear. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. Notice verse 13, he says, for I am the Lord your God. I am the Holy One of Israel. And if you go to chapter 42, notice verse 6. What does it say? I am the Lord your God. I have called you in righteousness. Verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. Notice chapter 43. What does he say there in verse 3? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice verse 5. Do not fear, for I am with you. Verse 10, he says, and understand that I am he. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord. And it goes on and on and on. And if you look throughout, especially Isaiah 40 to 46, these statements, I am. I am the great I am. Now remember for a moment, if when our mind goes to Exodus, and remember, what was the response of Moses when he saw God in the burning bush there's a sense of trembling was it not he said you know I must turn aside to see this thing and there was God and God made the statement that tell him that I am that I am and this place in which you are is holy ground trembling this otherness 
this experience that Moses had with God. And even in Exodus 33 and 34, he asked to see the glory of God, and he, he allows him to see, God allows him to see some of that glory, and there's this great experience he has with God. So we have this picture of God and his greatness, but this is the beauty of what Isaiah 57, 17 is saying. I also dwell with. It is not just transcendence. But I'm an eminent God. I dwell with those who are contrite and who are lowly in spirit. The incarnation. It's just a statement of it. Interesting. God has God created man that he would dwell with man. But ever since the fall, man has been finding ways to avoid God. But the beauty of it is this. God seeks us out. (laughs) Can you say amen to that this morning? That he seeks us out. Because what does John even tell us? No one comes to the Father unless the Father does what? Draws him, pursues him. Everyone here today that knows the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be thankful that this transcendent God pursued you and sought you out. And not only sought to dwell with you, but now as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, dwells in you, which is a thought that's beyond measure. So he says here, he dwells with these people. Be encouraged by God's humility. Go back to Isaiah 57. A third point here. Be encouraged by the statement of his purpose. Be encouraged by first the statement of his greatness. Be encouraged secondly by the reality of his humility, if you will, but also by the statement of his purpose. Notice verse 15. So he says, yes, I'm also dwelling with the contrite and lowly of spirit, he says. But notice what he says here in verse 15. In order, here's purpose, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So here we have the merging of transcendence and eminence. And some that seems to be incompatible. How can a God who's transcendent and other um, lofty, holy also be with men? And this is where our God is different. You won't find this in the mind of the Muslim in their picture of Allah. No, not, not an eminent God who is dwelling with his people who in fact indwells his people, who is intimately acquainted with his people. This is where we are distinct. And we should be humbled by this reality. But here's what's unfortunate, though. In the church today, there is now such a low view of God that we don't appreciate this the way that we should. And when we think about God, our our view of God has been so diluted. And and at times it seems as if God has been almost dethroned and and at times surely has been redefined. So when we think about the God of even at times in evangelicalism today, or what's called evangelicalism, is it the God of Isaiah 57, 15? I'm not sure that it is. And what's unfortunate is that some people say, well, if you preach this sort of God, it it makes God so distant from man, and how can man touch a God like that? But read the rest of the verse. (laughs) It's right there. The incarnation itself is a statement that here it is, God dwelling in our very midst, walking among men, touching men, speaking to men, healing men, feeding men. And we should feel privileged. And that should cause us to be encouraged all the more when we have a high view of God and we think that this God loved me. When I was um, part of my ministry, when I was there on the East Coast, I had a men's breakfast uh, with the men at um, Baltimore Bible Church. And I gave them just some thoughts for men to think about. Um, it was 12 questions that men should ask that we work through. And, and, and one of them, um, we talked about intimacy with God. It was action number one. What do you want from your relationship with God? The word was intimacy. And I said, brothers, and I'll say it to you even now here at Grace uh, Bible, when you have a high view of God, 
And you think about God and his greatness, but at the same time, you realize that this God has given his life for you. That should stimulate a desire for intimacy. There should be that sense of, you know, that and can it be. Is this, is it really possible that this God, as Wesley was thinking, has actually died for me? And never lose that. Never lose this loftiness of God. Never become too familiar with God. And this is what we see here, this high view of God, but yet we see his humility, which is obviously uh, amplified in Philippians 2. That he was obedient to the point of death, and what does it say? Even death on a cross is what we see in Isaiah 52 and 53 through the servant who was crushed and marred and forsaken. This is the reason that you see these emphases throughout Isaiah and these I am's. God is saying that, yes, I'm separate, but yet for those who are contrite, I'll dwell with them. Here's a, a thought. Go with me to Isaiah 52. So God is saying, I will dwell with you in... I will dwell with what people? Those who recognize their lowliness. So notice in Isaiah 52, just the words. Let's just look at the words that are here. We've already noted that he's going to prosper. Verse 14, he was marred. Verse 3, he was despised, forsaken. We did not esteem him. Verse 4, our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And this verse is so great. Notice what he's communicating. Um, He makes a statement in verse 3, despised, forsaken, sorrows, acquainted with grief, He was like one from men would hide their face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. And then he makes a statement, surely our griefs he himself bore. So what Isaiah is doing there, he's correcting. Don't misunderstand this. Don't think that he had this disposition because he was full of his own grief. He had this because he was bearing our griefs. It was our sorrows that he carried. And he says in verse 4, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. We looked at him and we thought, yes, he is being punished by God. It was true, but not for the same reason that it was. Smitten of God and afflicted. Yes, he was smitten of God, but he was smitten for us. Not smitten because he had displeased God. He was smitten because we had displeased God and he pleased God by dying for us. And, of course, the text goes on. And he would give his life for those, it says, the contrite. And it could be translated, those that are crushed. But yet he takes those that are crushed and he does what? He saves them. He says in Isaiah 57, he says, the lowly of spirit. This is consistent with um, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those uh, who is going to receive righteousness, those that are lowly in spirit. And it means a a recognition that you are insufficient. It's it's a recognition that you have no resources in yourself and you must go outside of yourself for help. So that is the lowly, those that are humble. Look look with me for a moment, just to take a moment. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 2. This developed this thought of the lowly. Isaiah 2. We're going to look at several texts here. Isaiah 2, and beginning in verse 9. Isaiah 2, 9. And it says, So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased. And now, remember, Isaiah 1 to 39, God is saying to, to the nations, You are going to be judged because you're impotent. You follow other gods. And he's making a statement here that you will be abased. You will be humbled. 
Notice verse 11. He makes a statement there. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be what exalted in that day. Notice verse 17 as well in chapter 2. What does he say there? The proud the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted, it says, in that day. Go with me to chapter 5 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. Again, this thought. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance will be abased. The eyes of the proud will also be abased. Look at chapter 10 of Isaiah. It comes up again. Chapter 10 of Isaiah. What does he say here in verse 33? Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs of the terrible crash. Those who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. Notice the contrast. God is one who is lofty. Men propose that they are lofty. They strive for it, and God is saying, I will bring you low. Who are the people that God dwells with? Those who recognize that, that they're, I'm nothing without God. People realize I, I need God. The proud man will be abased because why? His pride is an affront to God's glory. And God will not share his glory with another, will he? God is this way. I want to read something to you closes and and I was I wasn't sure and even in messages they at times even develop as they're being preached and you have notes in front of you and okay I've I've done some editing already and I thought do I get to this point and I thought it appropriate this is what I want if you walk away with nothing walk away with this you only have what you have Because the one who is truly exalted and high and holy and distinct gave his life for you. But Spurgeon put it so beautifully and poetically. See, it required the death of someone that you would have life. Isaiah 55 was only written because Jesus Christ in Isaiah 52 and 53 was crushed. Spurgeon put it this way, and bear with me. There is a day as I look back, and I had taken my walks abroad, when I came hard by a spot forever engraven upon my memory. For there I saw this friend, my best, my only friend, murdered. I stooped down in sad affright and looked at him I saw that his hands had been pierced with wrought iron nails and his feet had been rent in the same way there was misery in his dead countenance so terrible that I scarcely dared to look upon him his body was emaciated with hunger his back was red with bloody scourges and his brow had a circle of wounds about it clearly one can see that these had been pierced by thorns. I shuddered, for I had known this friend full well. He had never had a fault. He was the purest of the pure, the holiest of the holy. Who could have injured him? For he had never injured any man. All his life long, he went about doing good. He healed the sick. He had fed the hungry. He had raised the dead. For which of these works did they kill him? He had never breathed out anything else but love. And as I looked into the poor, sorrowful face, so full of agony and yet so full of love, I wondered who could have been a wretch so vile to pierce hands like this. I said within myself, where can these traitors live? Who are these that could have smitten such a one as this? Had they murdered an oppressor, we might have forgiven them. Had they slain one who would indulge in vice or villainy, it might have been their desert. 
had it been a murderer and a rebel or one who had committed sedition, we would have said, bear his corpse. Justice has at last come. But when thou was slain, my best, my only beloved, where lodged the traitors? Let me seize them, and they shall be put to death. If there be torments that I could devise, surely they will endure them all. Oh, what jealousy and what revenge I felt. If I might find these murderers, what would I do with them? As I looked upon that corpse, I heard a footstep, and I wondered where it was. I listened, and I clearly perceived that the murder was close at hand. It was dark, and I groped about to find him. I found that somehow or another, whether I put out my hand, I could not meet with him, for he was nearer to me than my hand would go. And at last, I put my hand upon my breast. I have thee now, said I, for lo, he was in my own heart. The murderer was hiding within my own bosom, dwelling in the resources of my inmost soul. Yeah. Amazing that you can go from a murderer to a child of God. You can go from one that was under the wrath of God to now you have peace with God. A a God that is high and lifted up and great, but yet he's humble enough to give his life as a ransom for you. You should be encouraged by that. Encouraged by his death that gives you life. Father, thank you. For these words that you use, I pray to encourage our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.